Hello, good morning, and welcome to PropCast. Now, this is the first of three special edition PropCasts hosted by me, Andrew Teacher, at Montford. And I'm going to be joined by Alexander Peace, who is our director of research and insight. And we're going to be talking over these three episodes about our summer trends report, hitting reset, trends for a new cycle, some of the things that Alex and I and our team at Montford think are going to be defining trends and themes in real estate over the next cycle, over the next year, two, three, four, five years and beyond. Alex, great to see you as ever. People have been asking me over the time, uh, you know, a bit of how we work as business. And Alex and I, we've been friends for a very long time and had the pleasure of working together for about 12, 13 years now, isn't it? Something like that. When we, uh, nearly 15 now. Uh, uh, yeah, it's scary. We, we don't have too many scars to show. And, uh, you know, the kids that Alex and I both had probably created a few more scars than the work over the years. But Alex and I first worked together at IPD, which I often talk about on PropCast. And Alex, when we first met, you were an analyst there, weren't you? in the team with Ian and Rupert. Yeah, that's right. That was a very long time ago now, but that's how I started out in the sector. And that was actually just in, gosh, 2008, 2009. And Alex, after some initial time with Blackstock, went on to work for Estates Gazette for EG as Data Insight Resi Editor. You were editor of a few things there, Alex. And luckily for us, he's come back. And this latest report that we published, we're happy to share. You can download it from montford.london slash news. And we're going to be talking through the first three trends from that report today. Alex, well, let's get started. So the first thing that we identified and talked about in the paper concerns falls in valuation. But in terms of the bright spot on the horizon, it's the impact that might actually have in bringing back some brighter sparks to the market, some of the opportunistic investors that perhaps have not been able to perform so well over the last few years as rates have been super low and the market's been dominated by allocators, which as you know, some argue has piled into and pushed up the prices of a lot of assets, particularly industrials and residential. So what's the thinking here on how value falls could lead to a boom in opportunistic investing? Well, I don't think it's even opportunistic investing. I think real estate's a cyclical asset class. When values go down, there is a chance to buy cheaper assets and turn a profit of that as values go back up again. The key is picking the right assets, finding ones that actually are going to recover their values. So, of course, you're in this situation now. Fantastic. Not fantastic, but okay, values have gone down 15, 20%, maybe 30% for worse assets. How are they going to recover? That's the question. Are they going to recover? And so those opportunistic investors or just real estate investors are going to have to pick the right assets for that. I mean, I think the cyclical point, I think, stands. But, you know, I'd always argue that there are some things where we are seeing total structural resets in terms of both usage and pricing. And that's probably no more evident than in the office market. The most, you know, I've got some of those old IPD graphs burned on my eyelids. And the main one being the volatility of city offices, always the most volatile, Alex is nodding for listeners' sake, always the most volatile of asset classes. But I wonder now how much of a structural change we're seeing, and probably more pronounced across North America than in the UK and Europe, just because of how big and dense the cities and the stock are. But many would argue that a large proportion of secondary tertiary office stock isn't going to come back in the way it might have done in a previous cycle. Yeah, I mean, I think the problem is more, we just still don't know what's going to happen to it. You know, pricing is, a, to use a French expression, sorry, a l'ouest, out to the west. Are people going to come back to the office? Are people going to be tempted back in or not? 
are we actually going to see office footprints, as a lot of the headlines say at the moment, only half of what they were before the crash? And because we just don't know how to price that, there's a lot of worry about the future of that. And so what is already quite a volatile market, as Andy rightfully points out, City of London was always a very large liquid and thus volatile market. Well, that's making it even worse. Then looking at the sort of more secondary markets already in London, but also around the country, well, firstly, we've got the volatility created by working from home, but then we've got the volatility of ESG and net zero requirements, but that's for another day. I guess in terms of who's going to be raising money in a minute, the intel and the feeling that I seem to be hearing from our clients and investors that I speak to is that there's a bit of a barbell situation going on at the minute, whereas if you're going in and you're raising money for super high-risk, high-returning strategies with specialised operators, specialist teams, and really focused platforms, those are succeeding. And equally, if you're doing ultra-low-risk, modest-returning strategies that are focused on you know, almost infrastructure-like returns, then you're also okay. But anybody in the middle right now is having some problems. Is that something you recognise from previous cycles? I'm getting so confused of all your different shapes, yeah, Andy. We've got a K-shaped recovery, yeah. we've got a barbell-shaped investment market. Uh, Good course, Lord, uh, uh, my mind's not uh, very... Uh, 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 most people would always say that Alexander, Charles, Peace and barbells aren't two things you'd ever well, hear in the same sentence. Much more comfortable behind the Mac. Look, I think, as with all of these things... It really depends what you're looking to get out of your allocation. And we were talking about this earlier, but does real estate actually offer that much of a premium over the risk-free bank rate at the moment, base rate at the moment? Not enormously. Are some well, people going to be Are people going to be happy with that? Well, maybe some of them are just because of the current market volatility and because of their allocations. Others are going to want these super high risk things. Perhaps those in the middle as you say, are less inclined towards that. But I think there's a lot of people raising out there for a lot of different strategies at the moment. I just think that the money is being very careful about where it's putting itself, is doing a lot of due diligence, and it's probably having a lot of trouble getting that past investment boards and investment committees as well, who are going to want a lot of extra information. I mean, one of the other things that has been talked about a lot in the market, and Oliver Shah, his column last week in React, talked about this in terms of the RSCS's latest drama on its standard and ethics committee resigning en masse. And there's obviously another RICS review going on right now around valuations. But I mean, that's another big elephant in the room here, isn't it, Alex, in terms of the fact that the market has moved, the RICS hasn't really moved. We've got a huge amount of asset classes which are operationalized now, which aren't simply a 20, 25 year lease with a bond style return attached to it. And these things are slightly more difficult to measure with a valuation system that basically looks in the rear view mirror. So I guess the question is, do you think the valuation system's fit for purpose? And is that going to be a hindrance to a recovery where the asset class itself has shifted? I'm no expert on value, so you'd have to ask a few old colleagues from IPG. We need to get Michael but, uh, Brockman on, don't I, we? I, I was going to say, this is not my cup of tea, but You've got a few different ways to value assets. You know, the people using your discounted cash flow models and all of this quite sophisticated stuff. When it all boils down to it, the real valuation comes from what is somebody going to pay for an asset on the day? How much money is handed over? That's all that a valuation model can come down to. It's difficult to be 
completely up to date all the time, especially for a sector which moves quite slowly, like the real estate market. It does its best in that respect. And there are always new models and new ways of doing things evolving. There may be questions about things not being fit for purpose at the moment. It will evolve. It will change. That just takes time. One of my most shocking things that I ever saw when I first started out in real estate, and I just couldn't understand it, it took me ages for a boss to explain this to me, was the idea of an upward-only rent review. The idea that a tenant would sign up to a 20-year lease and have only upwards only rent. I was like, well, that can't be right at all. Rent can go down, can't it? It's like not in our models. That's how it's all based. That's evolved. I mean, there are far less long-term leases now and upward, mm. uh, well, there are still upward only rent reviews, but far less long-term leases and things like that now. That is changing. So the whole system changing, but it can't change tomorrow because that would upset all mm. real estate values across the piece. But I think, you know, the thing that always irks me is as somebody that I don't claim to be a trained value, but I'm someone that understands data and how to read a spreadsheet. And I do think the opacity and the general obfuscation that exists within the market is a hindrance here, particularly when it's very difficult to compare like for like, not just because the assets are very different, but because people hide discounts, rent-free periods to push up headline rents, which obviously helps valuations, helps people get their bonus, but it doesn't help necessarily create a transparent market that helps bring in investors. And this is always something that I come back to. And again, you know, to your point on up with any rent reviews, anybody that's ever worked out in Asia would scratch their head and think, well, what the hell's going on here? Because the nature of retailers sharing their income information and having contracts tied to turnover, I mean, that's been in existence there for years. But it still seems to be a new thing. Let's move on to the second point we've talked about, which obviously feeds off of this, which is around the cycle of CapEx that we're going into. You touched on, Alex, the potential downstream costs of ESG-related concerns. And whilst Larry Fink has recently just scrubbed ESG from the dictionary, hasn't he? But regardless of what you call it, there's a huge bill coming down the track, both for refurbishing properties that aren't fit for purpose, whether it's your grand's house with its leaky roof or some office building next to bank station that might have been built 150 years ago. And equally, the sea of leaky buildings and other nastiness that needs to be ripped out has got a huge bill attached to it. And that's before we even get to the elephant in the room, which is some sort of functioning carbon tax market. Mm. Again, sticking with the office market, perhaps just because it's the easiest to visualise on all of this, but you've got this triple whammy of policy dictating it, occupiers demanding it, and now finally owners wanting to do it as well. The problem is, all right, how do I bring my building up to scratch? And at the same time, fit for purpose for the current market, for occupiers, I can't demolish it anymore because there's just so much inherent risk and inherent extra pollution with embodied carbon. Also the reputational risk created by the M&S, the Marks and Spencer's scandal, right? And it's really difficult. So there has to be you know, some very careful decisions during the process, which just adds time and extra layers of analysis and extra layers of risk, which perhaps weren't there before. And it's difficult. I don't think, well, we don't know the answer yet. There's going to be a lot more retrofitting as opposed to demolition going forwards, but retrofitting comes with its own problems, certainly its own risks. Well, so, retrofitting often isn't any cheaper. Or, exactly. Or I think that's the fallacy here. And I had a very nice lunch with Peter Monaghan a few weeks ago, the famous architect. And we, you know, we were talking in depth about this, and he won't mind me saying this, but what he talked about was the fact that as an architect, when you're going in and you're doing one of these retrofits, it can often be more complex and more time-consuming because of 
the intricacy and the work that goes into having to strip stuff back and rebuild it and reposition it. And then you've got all the time constraints dealing with the supply chain and, and everything else. Absolutely. I mean, it's a bit like the house builder debate. The reason they always preferred greenfield sites is because it's far easier to just crack onto a site with nothing on it already. Demolition's quite a pain. It takes a while. But after you've demolished it, then you crack on. But to actually strip back a building, to take out all of the nastiness that's inside doing that safely with other buildings around over quite a long period and then rebuilding that. And then you have to build your new office to those existing shapes. So what was built for an office in the 1960s or 70s has not got the same internal shapes, structures, layout that we want now or that modern occupiers demand now. That poses huge restrictions. Hmm. And in terms of, I mean, let's look at other asset classes because offices aren't the only one. And there's a big challenge, particularly in residential, not just linked to climate-related issues such as insulation. And I think it's fair to say we've probably got the leakiest housing stock in any developed nation. The English Housing Survey, which is always the report that basically is the census for housing, says that you know millions of homes are not fit for purpose according to its own statistics. But it's not just leakiness, is it, Alex? It's also just cladding. There's now fire safety issues in terms of the Mayor of London's dictat on second stairwells that's being another big block to the market. So CapEx actually means all sorts of things in residential. And I think particularly in areas like student housing, where the market's now been around for 20, 30 years, there's a whole heap of resi student housing, hotels, perhaps developed from previous offices that's now needing to be looked at on a wholesale basis. Yeah, I mean, this is just the standard problem in an evolution of a built environment that if we change the goalposts we can't suddenly expect everything built before to be brought up to that standard as well or at least not immediately i think the stats that we used in the report was like 20 percent of the current greenhouse emissions come from uk housing stock in the uk and just housing associations alone are going to have to spend 36 billion on retrofit budgets to get up to 2050 and that's just housing associations which was done through some savills research imagine the rest of the residential market this isn't just necessarily houses that were built 100 years ago and now we're suddenly scrambling to do it. It's exactly as you said, Andy, it's stuff built 20, 30 years ago. We just didn't have these same requirements. And now actually it's quite difficult to suddenly, as I said, change the goalposts and demand new parts to it. But we do need to do it. It's a very important part of it. And it's not just for ESG requirements. It's also making these buildings fit for purpose for the future and this is actually a later chapter that we'll be discussing on a later day i think you know the big challenge with housing associations and you know anybody interested in this should go back to last year's podcast that we did with andy hume who's the boss at hyde one of the biggest housing associations andy used to be the head of mortgage lending at lloyd's it's, it's a brilliant podcast he's incredibly funny and one of my favorites from the last five and a half years and on that podcast we talked about hyde housing's fight against a contractor that it won it was a landmark legal case that it won significant damages from a contractor over cladding and other issues and i think that remains a big problem but Again, if you look at the numbers, and I challenge anybody to do this, I think if you look at the numbers on housing associations, on what their rental income is versus potential downstream liabilities, you will find many are potentially insolvent. If you actually look at the real cost of mould, of Grenfell-related safety issues, of other things they need to do to comply with incoming legislation, many, many of these associations are not solvent. 
So, Alex, if housing associations aren't necessarily going to be the answers to investing in housing, obviously build to rent was something that you and I helped coin that phrase in a report that we wrote about 12 years ago. Oh, I wasn't part of that report. You can take credit for that one if you want. That was nothing to do but, with but me. You, I always get mixed up and still call it PRS now 15 years later, and I get shouted at for that. So, uh, But you obviously spent your three years at Estates Gazette writing considerable amounts of analysis around built to rent and other parts of the residential market. To what degree is this an opportunity now for these investors to come in, potentially pick up stock, reposition it or work with the market? Or is the return profile of that sector going to be a barrier right now? Or what do you reckon? Look, I'm always biased about resi and built to rent and all of that market. It's my favourite. It's what I wrote about for what, four odd years and with yourself beforehand. I think because of some of the repricing and the rebasing of prices, there's a lot more opportunity there. I'm seeing built-to-rent investors move back into the centre of town, which is pretty interesting again. As you say, there's still going to be a lot of problems with making sure those yields work. But structurally, you've got you know these inherent drivers of demand, which look much better on an investment proposal. I think probably what the most interesting bit about all of this is, is the evolution of those rental products. And actually, it's not just for young professional renters in their 20s and 30s now. There's this whole new different markets evolving, single-family housing. For old farts like us. For old farts like us. We were the future ones. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just put me off my stride there. I'm just going to look sadly out the window now. But for specifically old farts like us, Andy, there's single-family housing when we move out to the suburbs with children. There's senior living for when we get even further than that in all of its different grades. I'm afraid we've missed a boat, but there's co-living starting up as well, which I think is just... It's had a lot of problems at the beginning, clearly, and it's not particularly popular with planners, but I think it's just a brilliant idea for young people moving to cities who want to make new friend networks, who want to make a start somewhere with a more flexible agreement. So my point is basically, all right, pricing may be tricky in resi, is always tricky in resi, but there's some fantastic drivers of demand, some fantastic new products, and quite frankly, looking at the mortgage market at the moment, a lot of people who aren't going to be want to be buying a house. So um, it's well, not that, a bad thing. Uh, yeah, well, let's come on to trend three, which is does this cycle present a new opportunity for private equity and especially private wealth to come in you know the market over the last 10 15 years has been dominated by some of the big p houses notably blackstone which is hoovering up a lot of stuff at the minute as many people have commented but we have shifted away certainly over the 18 19 years i've been involved in this industry we have shifted away from a UK market dominated by listed companies, by the REITs and traditional fund managers. And right now, given the situation on cost of debt, given the situation on potential distressed debt, which you know, Bloomberg estimates to be over $175 billion globally, I'm not sure how accurate that figure is, but it sounds about right. Given that doing anything with debt right now is going to be very, very challenging whilst everybody waits for the dominoes to fall and the knife to drop and any other analogy that we can conjure up to happen... Is that going to create an opportunity for cash-rich private investors to come in, gobble stuff up, and then wait to refi in two years? Depends how much cash they've got, doesn't it? Are they actually <laughs> cash-rich, or are they taking out a lot of debt themselves? I mean, even the right, most yeah, cash-rich... Yeah. Equity here could be debt in another country. Yeah, exactly. You know, you look at a 10 million asset, let's say, just because I have to work with very simple numbers. They've got 1 million of equity, and they take out 9 million of debt still on that. 
and then they sell it for 12 million a couple of years later, great, then they reap in those profits. But You're not going to make much money on those numbers. Well, you know, even private equity is borrowing its money from somewhere a lot of the time if they have the cash brew. But then again, they've got to be able to deploy it. This comes back to an earlier point about where you can deploy cash at the moment, getting that past investment committees and whether they see that as too high risk or not. Well, also because the spread between offers and asks and requirements is quite big. People aren't willing to take those discounts right now. No, I mean, absolutely. Look, there's a lot of private equity real estate companies out there raising money at the moment. A huge number, actually, obviously from... Uh, 1,100, from, from, according yeah, to Prequin. Yeah, so it's that. but there's so many out there raising because a lot of them aren't closing. That's the other side to look at it. Those that can close are those of a fantastic track record that, you know, have proven this before and that are talking. A lot of them are out there still raising and have been for a while. And that's why those numbers are quite high, too, because there's a hell of a lot of opportunity. They're all really excited. But it's just being able to justify that you have the track record and the expertise and the specific targets that are going to be the place to deploy that. I think for me, the managers that are going to succeed, and we've said this in our trends report, it's going to be those that have got strong reputations for coming in and out of cycles, not just those with strong operational platforms in a particular niche sector, but it's going to be those that have got not just a track record, but have got a strong brand. And I think this often gets lost in property because so many of these kinds of companies aren't necessarily public or consumer facing. They're not taking on retail investment like an LNG, MNG type business does. Would you agree that brand is becoming more and more important, particularly in this digital age that we have now? Oh, I think brand's going everywhere now. Actually valuing that brand at the moment is still proving itself very difficult and how it works out into the property sector sometimes very strange. But I think just that name is insanely important now. That's why we've seen some of the biggest fund closes over the last six months, 12 months, being some very well-known household names that have done very well in the past. And for me, I think, uh, and this is what we'd always advise our clients, and, you know, here's some free advice for anybody. I think, you know, thinking about a multi-channel approach is more critical now than ever. You know, historically, it's all been about a slide deck, going on a road show, going to see the same old investors you've seen for the last 20 years. And nowadays, it's far more multi-pronged than that because there's so many new generations of people that sit in the chairs at those investment businesses at the LP end making those decisions. And those people are often digital natives. They've been brought up in the last 20, 30 years. And they're obsessed by Instagram and LinkedIn. And having that presence, not just for your financial record, but for the end assets that you're investing in, all of these things have a key financial outcome, which is that if you've got a brand and you're able to connect properly with your end users, your consumers, that could be your flexible office occupiers or Alex, your co-living point, your end renters. If you as an investor are able to more prominently place those assets and demonstrate an ability to market them or market them through your partners, however you're doing it, that ultimately makes you a better manager of cash because you're going to make more money. You're going to drive rental premium. You're going to speed up the leasing up of buildings, and you're going to be able to outperform. And I think that the successful managers are the people that are able to look at that and reflect on those things and to pull themselves into the modern arena. Because ultimately now, it's not just about sending out a press release when you've raised some money and doing what everybody did back in 2005. The world has changed quite a lot, hasn't it? Yeah, it's an interesting one, that actually, because I wonder how much of that actually evolved because people were just left holding assets they couldn't sell, actually, a few years ago, and they've started to evolve brands because of that. And how much of it is, 
you know, just modern evolution and realizing they need that, if that makes sense. Because, you know, certain private equity investors bought things they couldn't sell. And so actually they started building up the brand more effectively around that because actually they became the management companies. And that's worked really well for them. And so they've carried on doing that and it's evolved even more. I mean, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other on the two sides, I should imagine. Hmm. Final question before we close this episode. And I don't want to go too deep into this because our next trends report in September will be focusing a lot more on debt, which is a subject close to everybody's heart at the minute. But I'm interested the degree to which you think debt will finally become an established mainstream asset class and to what degree some of these private equity investors, private wealth piling into debt is going to shift the industry and what impact that's going to have over the next cycle? It's a question on a lot of people's lips at the moment. Quite a few of the headlines recently from certain conferences, people have been saying, oh, I, I want to pile into debt. I won't take equity at the moment. I want debt. There's a lot of people which still don't want to go too near it, basically. I suppose it depends what you're lending on, what your sort of covenants all are on that, what the final outcomes are. I mean, what do you think? Do you think the debt market is going to be expanding enormously in the future? Do you think there's going to be a lot of risk-averse people out there who make a lot of noise but actually don't lend? I think from the conversations I'm having and from what people are telling me, I think there's an evolution potentially coming down the track on people creating different debt products that can support sound businesses. You know, the problem that a lot of businesses are going to have right now is a different one from the GFC, right? It's a different one from the early 90s. And I talk in the intro to the report, I'm not sure how many hip-hop fans are listening to this. Shout out to Tim Burke at EG, is the biggest hip-hop fan in property. He'll appreciate my references to the famous rap group Tribe Called Quest and the early 90s office failures. But do let me know, listeners, what your favourite hip-hop songs are from the early 90s and how those align with property. But... I think the point is that the situation isn't the same as GFC. We don't just have loads of defunct businesses that are totally run out of steam. There's a lot of companies that are making money, that are collecting rent, but they just might be set underwater by the pricing of their debt if they haven't fixed it for long periods, as some of the smarter people might have done. So I think that creates an opportunity for lenders to come in, maybe take some equity, you know, have some different options on those businesses and work with sound business managers to help them recover. And that, I think, does create an interesting opportunity. I'm not quite sure how you value it, and I'm sure there'll be some smart lawyers that can come on to PropCast and tell us how you structure these things. But I see there being an evolution of the debt market now. And look, there'll always be people that will want to lend on grade A offices and hotels. But I do see it potentially becoming a little bit more competitive now because, as you say, Alex, it's a bit easier. You don't really have to do much. You know, you often don't have that much enhanced risk. If you're coming as a senior lender in a grade A office or a top-class hotel values have got to fall a long way before you lose any money right i think there's a few lenders that would disagree with you on that saying they've got all the risk without any control of the asset they probably need better lawyers don't they <laughs> <laughs> but you see what i mean of course it depends where you are in the debt stack yeah yeah of course you lose control you do not direct that asset and if you haven't got the expertise to direct that asset either it's not like you actually want to take possession of the asset at the end of a loan or something like that actually you want that person to repay the debt so it's just that question really and with pricing so difficult to establish at the moment it's all about well how do i decide what is a healthy level of risk on that cash that i'm lending basically and that's the 64 million dollar question well, look. well no no hang on hang on hang on the 64 million dollar question andy is what's your tip for the market if i gave you 100 million actually you'd probably need a bit more than that 500 million pounds what would you be investing in at the moment i'd probably be buying up lots of land in greenland which in 25 years will have a really temperate climate and be a great place 
to build a future King's Cross. That would be my tip, listeners. But we'll end it there for this first three trends. It's me, Andrew Teacher, and Alexander Peace from Montford discussing our hitting reset trends report. And you can download a copy for free from montford.london slash news and do get in touch with us if you'd like to come on and discuss any of these issues and hopefully you can catch the next two episodes of this propcast talking about the rest of the report thanks very much for listening we'll see you again soon